News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk more about this help for renters that has been announced by the provincial government. According to the government, more renters in B.C. will be protected through the creation of this new $500 million rental protection fund. Joining us now to talk more about it is Tom Armstrong, CEO of the B.C. Co-op Federation, Housing Federation. Tom, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Good morning. Good morning. What did you think of this announcement? You know, I could not be more thrilled. Um, uh, this, the government has taken a, a leadership role in addressing a critical uh, flaw in our housing market. And I think this is going to be a precedent that will uh, lead the way not only in, in B.C., but across the country. Were, you, were there any things of concern for you? And I was talking about this with Vaughn Palmer earlier, and there seems to be still some questions unanswered about how this is fully going to work. Well, we are in the process of working out a detailed contribution agreement with the government, but we're very close to ironing out all those details, and I expect this fund to be up and fully operational by the spring. Okay, so how will it work then? Maybe you could explain it to us. Yeah, so there are a great number of of existing rental properties uh, in the market that are at risk of being uh, bought up by speculators and, and where the rents will become simply unaffordable to people living in them now. The fund will um, make grants to qualified nonprofit or co-op housing providers that will enable them to buy up those properties, move them into the community housing sector to make them permanently affordable, and to keep rents where they are subject to uh, provincial rent caps. Right, but is that enough money to make a big dent in this problem? It is. You know, it, it's, we expect uh, that the fund will allow us to move anywhere from two to 3,000 homes. Uh, into the community housing sector. I think one of the mistakes that people make when they look at that number is they assume that the fund is meant to cover the entire cost of purchasing a building, but it's not. Um, Buyers will be able to source financing and and they'll be able to have rents from those properties that will allow them to to pay the financing down. The fund is only going to cover the gap uh, in the debt service uh, to keep rents affordable where they are. So we think it's quite possible that they're anywhere from two to 3,000 homes, and more if the fund can attract uh, contributions from uh, social impact investors and, indeed, other levels of government. And we think it's going to be a very attractive investment for, for many. Okay, that's interesting then. So they don't expect the fund to pay for the entire unit. Exactly. When, when you uh, borrow money to, to buy a multi-unit residential property, you already have an income stream from that property in the form of rents. So a new nonprofit owner will be able to draw on those rents to, to pay down uh, the debt. The, the property uh, will probably be more expensive um, than, than will be covered by the existing rents. And it's that gap that the fund will step in and fill. Okay, so what will be the requirements for getting uh, help from this fund? Well, you know, there are so many uh, very competent, experienced, and, and and able uh, nonprofit housing providers, co-ops, community land trusts uh, in the province, you'll just need to demonstrate that you have a track record in, in managing existing housing responsibly. As I said, there are dozens of, of uh, community housing providers that will be able to demonstrate that quite easily. Okay, so this, uh, where do you think this need will be felt the most? Is this going to be right all over B.C.? Yes, you know, that's something that uh, is frequently overlooked. We, we quite often talk about the affordable housing crisis as something that is um, endemic in, in the major urban centres in the province, but we have a housing crisis everywhere in the province, from 
urban through rural areas. Uh, so we think the fund is going to be able to do some of its best work in, in areas that you might not expect it to. Like where? Well, you know, in, in all of our, uh, in the Kootenays, in, in, the, in the Okanagan, uh, all over Vancouver Island, and of course in, in, uh, in the lower mainland here, uh, everywhere you look around the province, um, municipalities and, and, uh, and renters are telling us that, that there's a crisis, uh, both in supply and affordability. Uh, we think the opportunities are just enormous. So will some buildings then, Tom, benefit perhaps from converting to a nonprofit? Like, will they have to change their structure to take advantage of this? Uh, no, they won't, because uh, a real estate asset is really uh, agnostic as, as to the form of tenure. So, you know, there, there may be uh, renters in, in a building that's bought, say, by a community land trust that are interested in exploring the idea of converting to a co-op, but that won't be a requirement of, of the purchase. The main function of the fund is to keep rental housing uh, permanently affordable. And, and the, f- the form of tenure, uh, is uh, that could be discussed after the purchase. Right. Okay. So you anticipate these details getting worked out very soon? We're in the process of having that conversation right now with the government. Uh, we expect that within the month we'll have a, an executed agreement and we'll be operational by the spring. Okay. So this could be having an impact, what, later this year? Absolutely. Uh, we, we, uh, we've designed it so that it can be up and running quickly. Um, we're very excited about the idea of being able to to reassure renters in BC uh, that their homes are safe um, and secure against uh, the danger of speculation and that they can sleep easy knowing that their homes will be permanently affordable. Is there anybody else, any other province that is doing something similar to this, Tom? No, you know, that that's the exciting thing. There, there is a, um, a modest program in Nova Scotia um, that's administered by the government, but, but that's just straight financing. There's no debt or equity uh, contribution. The, this this fund will be managed by experienced leaders uh, in the community housing sector, BC Nonprofit Housing Association, the Co-op Housing Federation of BC, and the Aboriginal Housing Management Association. And it includes not only access to financing, but equity contributions to plug that gap that we talked about. Well, Tom, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. We appreciate it. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. Gomish First Nation really marking a milestone this week. They voted overwhelmingly in favor of reclaiming education. What does that mean? Well, it means that they will now develop their own education law, freeing themselves from a couple sections out of the Indian Act that actually gave Ottawa decision-making power over Indigenous children and schools. What does this mean in practice, though? How is this going to be instituted? Well, let's find out. Wilson Williams joins us now, Squamish Nation Councillor, to tell us more about this. Good morning, Wilson. That's Squall. Simi, how are you doing? I am good, thank you. So tell me, what is this process like? How did you get to this point? Yeah, it's, <clears throat> you know, it's uh, it's been a journey. And, you know, you know, I just follow some of the teachings from our ancestors in regards to, you know, when we were, our people were stripped of, uh, you know, our identity and, you know, through residential school or colonialism, there's always been that fight to regain it regain our identity back through our culture, our language and our traditions and, you know, our ways of life, which we reference as our Nukhmeh. So how long did this take though, Wilson? Can you give us an idea of, of the struggle to get yeah. to this point? Yeah, it's um my hands go up to, you know our ancestors and our people and uh our our 
our membership today. You know, we've uh, in, in the, over the past, uh, well, our referendum process took uh, quite a while, but we've been planning, strategically planning for the last few years. Um, and we've had a, a great team put together, but, uh, you know, we really implemented a strategy of engagement. You know, when we, when we force, you know, we don't want to force uh, governmental terms onto our people. So we really had to define what education jurisdiction is. And we really walked with our people carefully in our engagement. So over the past year and a half, we've been engaging with our, our membership, but all demographics, whether it's our elders, our youth, our, you know, our, our staff and our employees, especially our, our, our teachers, you know, and, and saying that I'm not just referencing our certified teachers in schools, I'm referencing our cultural carriers, our, our traditional people that uh, really hold historical knowledge of our people. And at the same time, our, our language carriers, our historians. So we really engaged the, the wide range of our people in regards to our ages, um, whether it's our children, youth, mm-hmm. and adults, and families. So, so, yeah. so when, when this happens now and you have voted to do this, what does that mean, though? Does that mean that Ottawa just says, okay, go ahead and do this? Uh, no, we, we're actually in a, uh, we're in an educational jurisdiction agreement now. We entered into this with the federal government. We're looking at signing this agreement in actually uh, amalgamation day for the hundred years of us being Squamish nation um, this summer. Um, so we're looking at signing that agreement that will allow us to um, put control in, into the nation in regards to starting to create this law and doing it ourselves and having that um, control to do it. So we're looking at, you know, and I'll just go back a bit. The month of December that just passed, we had that whole month open for voting, whether it was in person, online, or um, by mail. And the 30th, 31st was the last day. And, you know, that month itself took a lot of, uh, we had a lot of response, but at the same time, the, the time leading up to it was the most important time. Has any other First Nation done this in Canada? Yeah, we, we know of five other nations in B.C. Um, that have taken the reins. I'm not sure where they are on their timeline and so forth. Um, I can only speak to ours, but we are looking at the next... Uh, rent, when we start drafting the laws post... Uh, well, we're actually got a lot of uh, material now, but we're looking at when the agreement is signed with the federal government in, in July that we're looking at drafting something up and having something within four years that would uh, come to be come to fruition. Right. So that would mean taking that time to develop a curriculum. Yeah, it's curriculum. It's how, how our students graduate from high school because the, the education jurisdiction law goes from kindergarten to grade 12. So we're looking at how we transition our students from if it's from our our little one school, which goes up to grade four, mm-hmm. but ultimately we want our own schools to go to grade seven and grade twelve, where they carry the culture, the traditions, the ways of life, and our language. Wow. But at the same time, we we're in that spirit of integration. We're we're adapting as we've always done. 
So we're looking at how our students are preparing. We want to better prepare them for a transition from a elementary school, a high school, and post-secondary school. So we want to set them up for success where we're mindful of their gifts. So we're really utilizing our culture and traditions behind our, like I said, our ways of life and how we've adapted and survived since time immemorial as a people's. So we really want to go back to that where, you know, in schools now or before, like from, for me, instance, for instance, that we certain skills weren't acknowledged, but back in, in, in our ancestors time where our people, our people, our young ones would be acknowledged for special gifts and say, Oh, you're a hunter gatherer. You specialize in this. You're very spiritual. You, 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 you are, like a medicine person or uh, or you're a natural leader and, you know, things like that where right. you, you get brought up and groomed in a certain way of, of how you are. Just recognition for whatever unique qualities that child might have. Yes. Well, this is going to be a remarkable road. Wilson, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. Thank you, Simi. Appreciate that. You too. That's Wilson Williams, Squamish Nation Councillor, talking about this landmark agreement that Squamish Nation will be signing with the federal government, uh, putting them on the path to developing their own curriculum in schools, essentially taking education back from the federal government. Ottawa had decision-making power over Indigenous children in schools. It's all part of the Indian Act. And this is, they've now become, what, the sixth First Nation, as Wilson was saying there, who will start to develop their own path on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Forest industry in BC has had a real roller coaster ride of ups and downs throughout its history, but right now it's in a pretty bad spot. In the news just this week, hearing about how that mill is going to close in the Prince George area and what a devastating effect that's going to have. So what is going on? Why won't forest companies invest in this province? What would it take to get that going again? Well, joining us now is Jeff Bromley, who's the chair of the Steelworkers Wood Council. Jeff, thank you for being here. Good morning, Shima. Jimmy, have a thanks for having me. Well, thanks for explaining this to us, too, because I think a lot of people have this question about what would it take to get the forestry industry back up and running on more solid feet here in B.C.? Well, that's, it's, I guess, the proverbial $64,000 question, but uh, it's not just as simple as something being able to, what, what, what would it take? I mean, the industry right now is going through real transition in terms of fiber supply. I mean, these uh, most recent announcements, and announcements, and the, I really feel for the over 300 families and jobs that are the direct jobs in Prince George's that were, they're going to be gone as the announcement that they closed the pulp line of that, of that pulp mill uh, up in Prince George. But the, it's about fiber supply right now. Um, and, and there is a right now, I, I guess for lack of a better word, there's a reckoning in terms of the amount of capacity that's uh, in British Columbia in terms of manufacturing. And, uh, and that includes uh, pulp and paper. Uh, and into uh, the amount of fiber uh, and uh, to simply the trees that are available in the province. Are there changes, though, that you think the government could make to improve the situation? Well, I think there's, uh, quite frankly, I think that the government needs to li- listen a little bit more to the communities, the First Nations in, in the industry, and they are listening. But it just seems like we're not getting enough headway in terms of the availability of fiber out there. Because there is, so I'll, I'll couch my remarks by saying that it's not, the fiber situation is not good, but there is abilities to improve upon the fiber. I mean, I think that uh, through the last few decades, uh, there has been um, 
to a fiber that's left out in, in, in the, on the forest floor that's, that can be utilized. And there can be a way, there, there can be a structure that we can, uh, we can structure it in terms of being able to make the best use out of that fiber that's still uh, left in the floor, that pulp fiber in particular. Yeah, what do you mean by that? Can you explain it to us? What, how, is, how is fiber left on the floor? Well, because when not all the, not all the trees are, are saw logs. Um, uh, and, and in the pulp's case, they're obviously pulp logs. They're low-grade, um, and they're used primarily only for chips, and then their bark is used for what we call hog. It produces power, uh, steam, and then produces power for the mills. A lot of the mills run on that. So, I mean, as a, in an industry, we're extremely good at using, getting the most of the, out of the fiber and logs that we use. But there is fiber that is left. It's either... It's smaller fiber. It's this fiber that's not uh, the stuff that's the hog that's in the bush, that uh, the, the slash piles that uh, that are created during the logging process. And I think there's probably a, I think, not probably I think I know that there's a better way to use that uh, slash, uh, and certainly instead of burning it. Uh, I right. mean that happens at different areas of the province, and I, I think that there's areas there that we can improve upon. So what are the what is prohibitive then about using that fiber? Cost. Um, quite frankly, it's uh, it's the cost. I, I mean, if it's not economically viable, and that those two words are really they're a double-edged sword. These past two years, three years during the pandemic. I mean, I don't know if I have to really go over the most recent history in terms of the amount of a two by four. If during the pandemic, if you want to build your fence or build onto it, build a deck, um, it, it skyrocketed twice up into the you know fifteen hundred dollars for a thousand per thousand board feet. Now that same group of two by fours are worth about $300. So if you're looking to buy a build a fence or do a deck, now's the time. Jokes aside, though, the, like you mentioned off the top, the roller coaster ride that we've gone through uh, in terms of an industry, the fiber cost now is, is really reprehensible. And as soon as that fiber drops below um, the cost, sorry, as soon as that fiber cost drops, it doesn't drop. And the, um, the commodity cost does in terms of what they, the price that they get for our products. It's, it, it slows down the industry, and it doesn't. This roller coaster ride isn't isn't sufficient enough for the industry to say, "Hey, you know what? We want to try different things. Uh, we want to reinv- we want to invest in the province because we have the confidence we're going to they're going to be able to make a dollar." And you know, folks like my members are going to be able to work steady, and uh, communities are going to be able to thrive, especially in the rural and island areas of the province. So you don't need a stopgap measure. What you need is reassurance of a constant supply. Exactly, and that's the. I think that's the big over. Well, that is the overarching problem here because uh, fiber supply in BC is, is, like I said off the top, is is it's dwindling. It's re- it's resetting after the. Uh, obviously, we have we're dealing with uh, fires, we're dealing with the mountain pine, the fall down of the mountain pine bill, which is finished, and trees don't grow. It takes thirty, forty, fifty, sixty years for second and third growth to regrow where they can be harvestable. So we're dealing with that now, but. The industry is still a viable industry in this province. There, it's, we're going to go through a reset, but it's, and it needs policy, good government policy, in terms of making it economically viable. We have a stumpage system, that, quite frankly, I think that rails against uh, communities, uh, my members and their jobs in the industry in terms of it being able to be viable. And the government is reticent to try and deal with that stumpage system because they're afraid of a softwood lumber uh, backlash from the u.s but that's a whole that's a that's a whole other argument but i mean there's multiple multiple factors that are pressing the industry right now and 
just, I mean, while the Pulp and Paper were um, members and Pre-G aren't my members, uh, we're inextricably linked. Um, the chips that they use come from the sawmills that my members work in, and the uh, forest uh, in turn, the forest fiber that you know my members are, are working in the in the forests and the, the contractors and what have you. So, I mean, when it hurts us all when we when we see what happened with uh, the Canfor pulp um, mill up in, in Prince George, it it, it's, it reverberates throughout the province. Uh, you mentioned something there that about the pine beetle being finished. Is it done? Because I feel like we've dealt with this for decades now. Well, there's different cycles, but the, uh, the, 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 I guess, epidemic, I guess, for lack of a better word, I'm looking for the proper scientific term, but the actual experience during the 90s and the early 2000s is finished now. I mean, they've, it's, it, you had to harvest the pine beetle, beetle trees that, are, uh, that went through the northern boreal forest for the most part, some in the south, but for the most part in the northern boreal forest, and moved on through Alberta and, and northern Saskatchewan, actually. And in BC, for the most, when I say it's finished, I mean, there are pockets of, of spruce beetle, but there's always pockets of some sort of beetle or some sort of pestilence that is affecting the trees around the province. That's not unusual over the, over the history of the industry, but for the most part, the, the catastrophic um, issue that the pine beetle caused in the 90s and the early 2000s is now finished. Okay, so then are you hopeful, though, Jeff, you talked about you wanted the government to listen to communities. I mean, they've said that there's something coming on this, but what have you heard? Uh, right now, it's, uh, we're, uh, I mean, we're working, we're try- I'm trying to work with it. Uh, I'm actually scheduled to meet up in Prince George next week to hopefully meet with the new Forest Minister, Bruce Ralston, to try and uh, communicate our issues of our members in terms of what we, we'd we like to see different. And I mentioned it. I said I think there's got to be a different approach to, to stumpage. I mean, uh, I use this example a lot. If you, in up in the uh, British Columbia's northeast, in terms of the Chatwind area and Mackenzie and, and uh, not necessarily the north central, you, you don't have to go too far over the Alberta, over the Rockies and then over uh, through the Pine Pass over the Alberta border to find we have members in five or six mills in, Alberta, in northern, north central Alberta that haven't been laid off or haven't missed a beat or we're, having, we're not seeing closures. So why is that? They have, they have a bit of a different fiber supply, but not all that different. They're the same. They produce the same pro- uh, products. They produce this, they, they sell to the same markets. So what's the, what's the catalyst? What's the connection? And in my, I believe it's forest policy. And I think a more responsive stumpage system is the first and foremost, uh, foremost uh, situation that we have to address. Um, and quite frankly, the Americans and the, and the softwood lumber um, demands or the risk of, of them backlashing against uh, British Columbia in terms of the softwood lumber duties, I think that's a risk we have to take, to be quite honest with you. We have to be a little bit bolder because right now our members and, and, and communities are suffering because of layoffs and closures. So if we don't do anything, then, you know, I mean, we're just, we're just going to get what we get. We need to do something. We need to do something different in terms of enforced policy is where it starts. Well, listen, Jeff, thank you so much for that this morning. All right. Thanks for having me, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the BC gang situation is making headlines again, but this time making headlines next door in Alberta. Let's find out why. Kim Boland joins us now, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Kim. Morning. Now, you don't mind if I call you crime reporter extraordinaire, do you? (laughs) (laughs) Just reporter work. All right, I'll stick with the reporter. Uh, Let's talk about this latest story that you found out. Why why is this BC gang situation having such an influence in Alberta? Well, it's interesting because Alert, which is sort of the equivalent of CFSEU uh, in Alberta, announced this week that charges have been laid against five people in connection with... um, 
a search warrant that they executed back in November 2021, seizing over a million dollars worth of drugs, firearms, including one believed to have been printed with a 3D printer, which is, of course, very scary uh, for the public and for police. Two of the people charged are from Surrey, and one of them, a young man named Jason Surrey Yavong, is facing a count of recruiting uh, people for a criminal organization. And police uh, in Alberta are alleging that he was you know, bringing young people from Surrey, from the Lower Mainland, to Alberta to work for a major drug line. Uh, so, you know, it's a relatively new development, and uh, police said it's a very rare charge to have laid, uh, but they felt that they had the evidence to justify it in this case. So it's so rare that have you heard of this happening before? Well, I've heard of people recruiting for sure, but I mean, they've obviously got evidence uh, enough to get a charge laid. I haven't heard of a charge being laid before. All five people are also facing one charge of working for the benefit of criminal organization, uh, you know, on top of drug charges, firearm charges. You know, that does happen here in B.C. We have seen those criminal organization charges laid. And, of course, they're enhancements. If people are convicted, you know, they will get a longer sentence because they were committing their offense for a criminal organization. Right. So what do you think this shows us then, Kim? Is this an expansion of B.C. gangs? I think we've seen this over the last few years. Uh, they want to go anywhere where they can make money. Uh, they're working closely with counterparts in Alberta, right next door. But we also know that uh, BC gangs, United Nations, Brothers Keepers, Wolfpack, are very active in Ontario, in Quebec, and even outside of Canada right now. So uh, they're more sophisticated than we probably ever gave them credit for when they were young kids uh, shooting at each other uh, on the lower mainland. Uh, But in reality, some of these groups have become really international organized crime groups. So what is the level of cooperation like between provinces to figure out something like this? Oh, I think it's really, really good. I I think that they know the whereabouts of these people. Uh, In this case, two of the people charged, including an Alberta man who is believed to have fled the country named David Nguyen. He is 31 years old. We've put a photo of him up on our website. Um, He actually faced a murder charge here in B.C. for a period of time, uh, was alleged to have uh, shot a, a gang fellow visiting from Edmonton in Richmond in a schoolyard or near a schoolyard, if you will, back in 2014. And then several months later, the charge was dropped or stayed. Uh, so, you know, people, uh, police out here have been very well aware of who these people are. Sometimes they've been suspects in cases here, uh, but they're operating allegedly their drug lines in Edmonton, Grand Prairie, and other Alberta cities. So is the gang situation similar in Alberta to what we have seen in BC, that like the same level of activity? I don't think it's perhaps the same level of activity, but for sure. I mean, the drug trade is everywhere in this country. And uh, the people involved in the drug trade go to where they can make money or expand to where they can make money. Uh, But in order to have those drug lines, you want people that you trust working for them. And that might mean bringing uh, your friends, associates uh, from the Vancouver area to Alberta, to Toronto or to elsewhere. Hmm, Okay, so what kind of questions do you still have after hearing about this? Well, we'll see if those criminal organization charges stick. 
they're not always laid. They're harder to get convictions because, you know, they have to sort of prove uh, not only that, you know, these people committed the offense of, you know, possession for the purpose of trafficking, possession of firearms, etc. They have to prove that this group was, uh, you know, three or more people acting as a criminal organization. So it can be challenging. For example, charges like that have been laid in B.C., uh, in previous years against the Hells Angels, and there's never been a conviction of a member of a Hells Angels in BC for working on behalf of a criminal organization. So it's not always easy to make the case, uh, but it looks like uh, the prosecutors in Alberta are attempting to do so with this group. Mm, so interesting. Kim, thank you for that this morning. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. That's Kim and crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun, talking about this latest case. And you can read about it, VancouverSun.com. Check it out about a Surrey crime organization that is allegedly recruiting people in B.C. to get into trafficking drugs in Edmonton. This is a case on that. And she said, rare to see charges like this. So read her latest story to find out more on that.